Welcome to No Hope, the podcast. The Roaches of Musical Theater. Hello. Hello. Are you still there? Are you there, listeners? It's us, Tim and Scott. It is Tim Amiller and Scott Schneider. And we are No, no hope. hope, the podcast. Yeah. This is our 19th Ugh, episode. Can you believe it? In those dark I, days of March to the dark days of October. Here we are. <clears throat> it is It is actually pretty... Um, astonishing. Astonishing. That we're is alive. Good, yes, we're alive and we're, <laughs> we're, you know, it's one of the things. It's like we're the roaches yeah. of musical theater. Oh, we, just, sure. we just... We <laughs> just... <laughs> Completely. Oh my god. You know what? Oh wait, actually I want to tell you something funny. Speaking of life or or not life or the circle of life, I thought this was amusing. Yesterday I woke up and I like, you know, my bed's by the window and my eyes flutter open. I look outside and I'm like, for a split second, I'm like, is this fucking snowing out? And I was like, what the hell? Then I looked and I was like, no, those are like feathers. And I looked up and on the uh, on the tree, there was a hawk that was like ripping a small bird to shreds. Like within like all of these feathers were coming down. And I started laughing and singing, from the day we arrive on the planet. <laughs> I mean, it was like, I, it, but I was fascinated and continued to watch it for like five minutes. Also, because I had just woken up. And then, and then eventually, like a, some squirrels went running up the, up the, uh, the tree. And then the hawk flew off, pissed off. And the, it was like a whole National Geographic episode. So... Um, anyway, oh but God. thought of you because it was like if there could have been underscoring, like I would have. It was for sure a circle of life moment. It's so vicious when you see stuff like that. <laughs> it was. It's That's why I was laughing. So... I was like, God, I was like, the world is a cruel, cruel place. <laughs> yes, it. I mean, it doesn't bode well for for the ending of things. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness, totally. But we're we're here to just lightly touch on uh on on bird mullings. We're we're mostly here to talk about musical theater. We are. We are and because this is uh Scott's turn yeah. to to uh, talk about something that he loves, I am going to cover a few rewinds. Ooh. Rewind. This this was uh, this was actually pretty interesting, I will say. So so the most of my rewinds are about the producers okay. because I realized I didn't have a lot of answers. My God, well. seriously! Like as soon as we start doing this, I have to swallow like every fucking three seconds. It's so bizarre. Yeah. Um. So I didn't have a lot of information about sort of the the Oscar, not Oscar, God, the Tony situation mm-hmm. and and who they were up against and how it all sort of played out um so their competition was definitely i would say light i don't know any of these other three musicals oh. well 
I have not seen any of them. I know a little bit of the uh, music. Jane Eyre, okay. a class act, oh, and the full Monty. A class act was developed at Musical Theater Works when I was That's there. That's what I thought. Uh, that was by Lonnie um, Price. And, Lonnie Price, uh, yes, yeah. about the making of a chorus line, right? Uh, I know it was about a lyric. Oh my god, this is so embarrassing. Oh my god, no, but like I don't. 100%. I think it was about the making of a chorus line. I know it was about like lyricist Ed Kleban, who was like the lyricist for that. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so then it, it had to have been that. Okay. Anyway, so th- that those were the three other shows that were nominated. So, okay. who the hell wrote okay. Jane Eyre? I don't even remember that. No idea. I didn't remember it either. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Who am I asking? It's like, you know. Um, yeah. Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick were both nominated, yeah. and Nathan Lane won. Oh, Matthew Broderick did okay. not. Yes. <laughs> um, so, the total... Of I believe it was thirteen. We did, we announced right. Was it thirteen? I don't know. So it was it was best musical actor, featured actress, scenic design, costume design, book of a musical, original score, lighting design, orchestrations, direction, and choreography yeah. for Miss Stroman. It, so she was all, she was I believe then the second woman yeah. to win the best direction of hmm. a musical after Julie Wait, Taylor. One for book. Yep. Yeesh. Yep. I, know. I, know. I know. I mean, that's that. the, this is for me. It's like one of those those <laughs> things, and I think it's another reason why it makes me so angry is because it was such a lightning strikes moment. Sure. You know, like, like obviously right the, 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 the the playing field yeah. was not the same as so many shows sure. that either do win or somehow get overlooked mm-hmm. because it was just so competitive. And this year, this is what we had to deal with. So <laughs> it's a disgrace. And it's one of the things that makes me so angry and why I hate musical theater. It's a disgrace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that. Oh, my God. Uh, and then I th- think I also mentioned that um, Mike Ockrent. Uh, mm. who was Susan Stroman's husband, had originally been slated to direct, and she was only slated to choreograph. But then he passed away from leukemia in 99, like right before wow. this was all happening, or while it was happening. It's terrible. They met while he was directing Crazy For You, oh. which she choreographed. And apparently Crazy For You was also his sort of child. Like he developed the concept yeah. of that musical. I don't think he was actually uh, credited with writing it, but he was uh, sort of the, yeah. The, I love me some George Gershwin. And I actually conceptual. Liked, I liked that show. So despite it, you know, being a cobbled together collection of Gershwin tunes. Um, and his his career, this is my last note about him, was primarily as a director in London. He he directed the plays Educating Rita, The Nerd, and Follies. Okay. He also did several made-for-TV movies. So that is all I have to say about the producers. I did not I I did not find out about uh, licensing and how frequently the producers is done, but I think mm. I did mention to you a couple of weeks ago that I found a clip of a high school doing the producers with uh, uh, the springtime for Hitler. Yeah. Wow. Which was, which was f- like, it obviously was a high school that had some funds in their theater department because it had, it was pretty lavish. I was like, sure. it was pretty surprising. And I don't know where it was. Like, it so was, unfortunately, was it Carmel, Indiana, where I'm from? Cause they, I, they knew how to spend a pretty penny on the high school oh. musical. Yeah. Oh, um, I don't think so, okay. but but I don't know for sure. Uh, this, this one is hysterical. When I was trying to figure out, like, the guy Billy Aronson, who actually was the original concept creator of Rent, who we talked yep. about, mm-hmm. who is credited on the liner notes, 
I was trying to figure out what does he do and how much money did he make from rent? It was it was impossible. My Google search was fruitless. I'm sure there is somewhere that I can find it, but this this was the range. His net worth on different websites yeah. ranged from 1.8 million to 32 million. Oh my god! So obviously Helpful. we have no fucking idea. Yeah, and and I did confirm on those websites that they were talking about the same Billy Aronson. Hmm. But in terms of other writing, there's a mention of several one act plays, a few children's musicals, and writing for existing children's television shows. And I think he also produced content for PBS. So ultimately, I don't really have any information mm. about Billy Aronson. If anybody knows how much Billy Aronson made off of rent or how to find that out, or if you give us or a if you are Billy, reach out to <laughs> us. If your name is because Billy Aronson. People are looking for you. Maybe he like changed his name and like, you know, move to No, a no, it, there, there are island. many photos available oh, online okay. of him and and in his current age yeah. and he's he's married, he's been married to the same woman for I think they got married right around the time of rent and they actually worked together on many of those projects that I mentioned um the children's television shows and musicals. Um this is completely random uh and it's actually more related to what I'm going to talk about later so maybe I'll wait and save oh, that one. Teasing me. Um but the one other thing that I did want to talk about was, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. Oh, oh, please tell me you looked up some information about this. Well, I mean, most of it we kind of already talked yeah. about, but it was the frequent target of censorship yeah. due to its discussion of sex, yeah. of course, but also allegations that it contained profane or anti-Christian material. Right. The because whole thing the, was the mother, mother yeah, was yeah, a Christian yeah. and the father was a Jew. <gasps> the scandal. So, the scandal. So, so, <laughs> in addition to Margaret dealing with her puberty, yeah. like her, you know, her coming of age, um, she also had to deal with the fact that she didn't feel that she had a religion yeah. of her own. She was having a little which spiritual I, crisis had, at a young age. Yeah. Of course, I had completely forgotten about that. The other thing is that because of the success of that book, Judy Bloom wrote, then again, maybe I won't, which was a, a book from the same sort yeah. of um, age, but from the boy's perspective, oh. which tackled some of the same concepts, excuse me, in terms of a boy going through puberty, which covered things such as erections, wet dreams, and masturbation, yeah. as well as shoplifting and ill behavior. Wow. <laughs> there's, you know, this is crazy because there's some like a lot of rewind stuff that we just talked about is kind of is weirdly prefacing some stuff that I'm going to talk about. Oh, I promise to talk about wet dreams. How about that? What <laughs> exactly? Oh my god, I am fascinated. Astonished. Yeah, I am fascinated. Yeah. Okay, okay, so that's all oh. of the rewinds that okay. I have. I have one other, but I'm going to save that Great. for um for next. I can't wait. So, so it's me. Drum roll, it's, please. It's me to talk about a musical. That this I, is. And this is the last musical that yeah. you're going to talk about that you love of our season, yeah. which we are, which is coming to a rapid close. I know. So. I felt some pressure about that, and so I feel like this may not be brief, but you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best to to plow through everything I want to say about this. Um, well, that's all you can do. That's all I that's can really do. All you can do. Um, I mean, first, I want to mention that I've I've never actually seen a professional production of the show, which is crazy i don't understand how that's possible um 
when I was in junior high, which is like every one of my stories and uh, from from this podcast is about something from junior high. But when I was <laughs> <It's> so, <laughs> true. so true, I'm like, apparently those were some formative years for me in terms of musical theater. Uh, but yeah, when I was in junior high, our high school did this show as the spring musical. Uh, and I went to go see it with my my mother, I think just me and my mother. It's a pretty adult show, so it still kind of surprises me to this day um, that they did it. Uh, they did make some lyric changes, but but it's kind of like when you watch the TV version of Showgirls. I don't know if you've ever watched that on television before, uh, where, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, they painted CGI bras on the tits and overdubbed the most offensive lines, but it's not like suddenly mary poppins like you you still it's still pretty adult if you will you get the gist i have never seen showgirls on television that's no, hysterical i know it's no, kind of no. ridiculous okay. that they like even even did it to do it yeah. but yeah. here we yeah. there we are there we have it yeah. um although you know what let's briefly discuss showgirls because let me mention just very quickly that there was a parody musical of it in recent years um did you see it I didn't see it. Okay, but you saw Silence, the musical, right? Yes. Which was, of course, a parody of Silence of the Lambs. Um, so Showgirls was also a thing. I saw it at the the cabaret space. Remember that cheesy touristy gay hotel, the Alt Hotel on like oh. 42nd Street? Yeah. Yes, I do remember. And I remember when you saw yeah. that. I remember yeah. when you it saw that. It was like it had a couple incarnations, but that was the one where I saw it. And I always say it was like not so bad. And, and the the actress who played Nomi was very committed, you know, not just because she was essentially bare breasted for the vast majority of the, you know, 90 or so minutes of the show. But uh, the horrier, that's like a horde of warrior combined. It was fun. It was fun, you know, for like a like a parody musical, um, right? Okay. Anyway, yeah. So it was silence. Uh, yeah, silence was fun too. Uh, I think I saw that at uh, okay. What was the one that was like a um, a public school, right down in the East Village? What was that space? It was like a former or maybe even current public school. I don't think it's a public school, Anymore. but it's on it's on Eighth Street. You know what it's I'm on St. Mark's, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I saw it. Okay, I'm sure. Okay, okay. Maybe we might have even seen. It's possible. Did we see that show together. Yeah, I don't it's know. possible. Don't know. It's all blending together. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to talk about Showgirls. Um, the music I want to discuss instead is about a group of professional dancers auditioning for a Broadway show. And now that I've said that, you should hopefully know that today's musical is a chorus line. Oh my god! Which is so funny that you brought up a class act earlier, oh which my may gosh. or may not about the may or may not be about uh, the development of a chorus line. Just <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, anyway, a chorus line. I feel like you don't like you, this show, right? I feel like maybe you don't like um, this show. I, you know, again, I have also never seen a professional production. I've only seen okay. the film and I've seen like clips from. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I don't dislike it. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe by the end of this, you'll like it. Um, a Chorus Line is a 1975 musical with music by Marvin Hamlish, lyrics by Edward Kleban, and a book by James Kirkwood Jr. and Nicholas Dante. 
Um, sat on the bare stage of a Broadway theater, the musical centered on 17 Broadway dancers auditioning for spots on a chorus line. A chorus line provides a glimpse into the personalities of the performers and the choreographer as they describe the events that have shaped their lives and their decisions to become dancers. Uh, first, I have to wonder in the history of musical theater if there's ever been a more effective opening number than God, I hope I get it. Uh, that does. Uh, yeah. So, and even though I did first see this as a high school production, I'll never forget experiencing that opener because it's just so perfect and it subverted my expectations of what I thought I'd be getting in a show about dancers. I expected, you know, like this perfectly sung and impeccably choreographed piece, but instead it opens smack dab in the middle of an audition. Um, the score begins with the sound of a dingy rehearsal piano plunking away like dutiful chords. Uh, the choreographer barking out steps and the sound of dancers hitting their marks. You immediately get this feeling of uh, of repetition, of desperation, of high stakes. And then the orchestra comes in building tension. And then when we finally do hear from the dancers, it's all of them exploding in perfect unison. The lyric, God, I hope I get it. And as an audience member, you just like do get it. Uh, here's this like teeming mass of dancers desperate for work. And, you know, they're like belting out phrases like I've got to get this job. I mean, it doesn't really get much cle clearer than that in terms of intention. Um, and I still get chills to this day thinking about the end of the opening sequence. It's this perfect combination of music and staging. Um, all of a sudden at the end, the dancers spread out purposefully walk up to the line the lights briefly go out and then to the sound of these dissonant chords hitting the lights come back up and it's they're holding their headshots in front of their faces it's so like wildly dramatic and uh it perfectly sets up that we're gonna learn a whole lot about these these humans which is exactly what happens how, and how many of them are so there? there's 17 17 remain after like characters. the opening wow. sequence uh, there's 17 remaining dancers and the director okay. Zach has to ultimately cut down to a chorus of four men and four women. Uh, so he's got to make some cuts uh, and throughout the show, he wants to learn more about them. So he asks them to introduce themselves and they sort of like reluctantly reveal their pasts. Um, I feel like when people think of a chorus line, they mostly think of the finale, the song one you know, with the iconic gold costumes and top hats and perfect kick line. Or maybe they recalled the like pretty, but honestly, I think it's a little bit paint by numbers ballad, what I did for love. But those songs are actually probably my least favorite songs in the show. What what I did for love, when you even said it out loud, <laughs> gave me chills. Really? Gave me chills. Yeah, I, I do love that song, it's even though you're song, absolutely right. It's it like is a little, cheesy it's as cheesy. fuck. It's cheesy. It's, it's, yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's totally paint by which numbers, but it most still of the gets me. not cheesy, which I'm definitely going to get into. Um, yeah, so those like two songs, like although they're really well known, are, are probably my least favorites. This show is all about the journey of getting to that kick line. Or not getting there, as it may be, given that, you know, they're not all going to make the cut. 
it's a show about just like the daily grueling behind the scenes slog of show business, um, sacrifices people make to follow their dreams and, and honestly how like fleeting those dreams can be. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and on that, on, on that, it's like the best case scenario for a dancer's career is pretty short. Um, in the end during that whole career it's like they have to deal with the knowledge that like at any moment it could be stopped cold by an, inju- an injury you know it's kind of like an athlete like a gymnast or yeah, a skater like a, or a tennis player yeah, or something like, like that you're working and they're so young your entire life yeah. and then like boop, yeah. it could be gone i mean we've said this before but uh but we should count our blessings question mark because we can keep doing this up until the old age home oh yeah as long as I mean, at some point we'll just be able to dictate. Like, yeah, bleh, bleh, no, yeah. No, I mean, I think our brains are already starting to fail a little bit. But like, in theory, we could continue to do this for quite a while. Um, I admire a chorus line for all sorts of reasons, but uh, primarily due to its humanity and authenticity. It often feels like you're really eavesdropping into an audition and into these dancers' pasts. And most of that, I think, has to do with the development of the show. Um, This show was primarily the baby of director-choreographer Michael Bennett. Uh, In addition to A Chorus Line, his major credits were the choreographer for Promises, Promises, Follies, and Company. Uh, and then after A Chorus Line, his major credit is he was the director choreographer of Dream Girls. Uh, he was himself a former Broadway dancer, and he wanted to develop a show that honored a dancer's life. It was created under the support of producer Joseph Papp of the Public Theater. Uh, and its genesis was a workshop share session where a group of dancers met after rehearsals for other shows to talk about their personal and professional lives. The sessions were tape recorded, written down, and a musical libretto was pieced together. Uh, playwright novelist James Kirkwood and former dancer Nicholas Dante assembled that book. So based on the source being actual dancers, the characters never, ever, I feel like, come off as caricatures. Um and then also because it's like real people's stories, the tone of the show very varies quite a bit, uh, depending on what's you know what what they're telling. Um, it can swing quickly between funny as hell and like very moving. It's also really unvarnished, and the characters just speak in everyday language that you, you'd expect from a bunch of working dancers. I made a joking reference at the top about showgirls, but it often does for me kind of come off as like an NC seventeen musical of sorts. Um, I'm going to mention a couple songs that I dig in the show. There's one well-known song called Dance 10 Looks 3. Uh, <laughs> I love that yes. song. I love that song so much. At the top of the song, the character Val tells everyone a story about how she swiped her dance card after an audition, only to find that casting rated her for Dance 10 for Looks 3. She goes on to sing this. Well, dance 10 looks three, and I'm still on unemployment, dancing for my own enjoyment. That ain't it, kid. That ain't it, kid. Dance 10 looks three. It's like to die. Left the theater and called the doctor for my appointment to buy. Tits and ass. Bought myself a fancy pair. Tightened up the derriere. Did the nose with it. All that goes with it. Tits and ass. Had the bingo bongos done. Suddenly I'm getting national tours. Tits and ass won't get you jobs unless they're yours. Tits and ass. Bought myself a fancy pair. Tightened up the derriere. Did the nose with it. All that goes with it. Tits and ass. Had the big 
this song, uh, you're laughing, which is appropriate. The song, it's mostly played for laughs and, but it's also like pretty fucking dark and c- oh, cynical yeah. when you consider yeah. it. Like the character Val, she's self-aware and she's taken this blunt criticism of her looks and she still cares so much about making it that she like alters her appearance. And also, guess what? The joke's on you, because now she's choosing herself to kind of make a big laugh out of it. When I first heard this song as a kid, I I honestly kind of rolled my eyes and dismissed it as just like, you know, like the ditzy blonde song. But now I listen to it and I'm like, no, this is more like, you know, a little bit kind of like Dolly Parton and her shtick. This is like a smart, savvy woman, like doing what it is she has to do. I should mention that. In my high school production of the show, the lyric tits and ass was this and that. Oh, my God. (laughs) But the the girl who's, you know, like 16 was still like deliberately motioning to her tits and ass, which made it all the more ridiculous. I'm like, oh, she can like point to her tits, but she can't say the word. So, yeah, like TV version of Showgirls for for sure. Hysterical. Oh, my God. Um. Another song in my in the show, actually probably my favorite song in the show, isn't really a song per se, but this montage called Hello 12, Hello 13. It's this ensemble piece where all the dancers are piling on these coming-of-age stories. And it's just, you know, it's sort of about the awkwardness of growing up. Uh, the, the refrain is, is this. Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love. Changes, oh, down below, up above. Time to doubt, to break out. It's a mess. It's a mess. Time to grow. Time to go. Adolesce. Adolesce. Too young to take over. Too old to ignore. Gee, I'm almost ready. But what for? There's a lot I am not certain of. Hello 12. Hello 13. Hello love. There are little vignettes sprinkled throughout throughout about, wait for it, wet dreams. <laughs> oh, playing, I don't remember yeah, the wet dream. Playing doctor, seeing parents naked, social anxiety at school, being too unpopular to go to the prom, on and on and on. It's sprawling and everyone kind of piles on because, I mean, what's more universal than the awkwardness of growing up? <laughs> Our character Val from Dance 10 looks three. At one point, she barks out, tits, when am I going to grow tits? All in all, (laughs) it's a far more accurate representation of growing up than that piece of shit gender role fantasy song, How Lovely to Be a Woman, that I recently bitched about from Bye Bye Birdie. Um, Oh, my God. Like, oh, the more more I listen to that song, the more I despise it. (laughs) Um, I was going to mention to you that I, the, the other, the other experience that I had with this musical is a few years ago, I read sort of a history of the public theater, but it was, um, it was all interviews. So it just like uh, uh, basically uh. chronicled like all of these like major productions from the public theater. And of course, a chorus line is one of the biggest chapters and they, they talked to, to so many of the people that had been a part of the process. And of course there were people who were 
annoyed with the process sure, because sure. they felt like their material was was stolen from them. Well, you know, they um, got a. Did they talk about that at they, all? They got like a financial cut yeah. or something. It was a little bit of precursor, right, to like some of the stuff yeah. that we're seeing now with like Hamilton yeah. and exactly, yeah. exactly. Which I mean, I am a hundred percent on board with that because, like, why not? If it recoups and there's net revenues to share, like, why not give those people? And you know, you know how much happens in the like in a yes. workshop, like yeah. They, it's Absolutely. like, they, like some, those actors like can really, really shape, you know, the direction, yeah. the direction of a role and the show in general. Um, and also just for the record, a class act is indeed about uh, it's it, you were right. It focuses on the life of, of the lyricist Edward, Edward Cleben. Yeah. But because that is his most widely known thing, mm-hmm. it, it says specifically it also serves as an homage to a chorus line. Whew, okay, we can escape embarrassment. Thank you yes. for for validating that. Um, should I keep going? Yes. Yeah, more, more, more. Uh, there's a couple other songs I do want to call out. There's this really great journey in the song Nothing. Uh, at the top of the song, the character of Diana is recalling some ridiculous exercises she had to do in her high school acting class where she had to act like a table, a sports car, an ice cream cone. Uh, she tries her best to melt as the ice cream cone, but just feels nothing. I was kind of chuckling recently when I, like, you and Don were talking about that like director, right? Yeah, yes, yes. I was like yes. totally thinking Pavel. about the song and about the, yes. like, her trying to melt as an ice cream cone. <laughs> um, th- I remember this song like vividly because yeah. I also hated improv, and I, uh, you know, when I went to school, yeah. I was that was my thing. I was going to be an actor, so you had to take all of these fucking improv classes and even sometimes in acting classes you would have to improv yeah and i would always just fucking like (laughs) just like fear and terror would like wash over me like instantaneously and i remember when i heard the song for the first time i was like oh my god it really makes you realize that other people you know also have that fear and terror yeah some people just love that shit i mean I'm, you know, because I'm not an actor and never really aspired to be one, I'm very happy that I didn't have this experience because, yeah, I think it would just, I would both think it was ridiculous like Diana does in the song and also like can be completely anxious about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Am I going to, am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to melt correctly? You know, like talk about getting in your head, uh, you know, and, and, and so she does get in her head in this song. So she's mocked a bit by the teacher in the class that she'll never succeed as an actress because, you know, I guess she sucks at melting. And uh, and after kind of second guessing herself, she eventually comes to the realization that, no, the class is indeed bullshit and she should, like, trust her instincts. So, you know, it's a little bit about believing in yourself when when others don't or won't. Um, I feel like lesser writers probably would have just written a funny song about the silly acting exercises and left it at that and, you know, maybe not really connected all those emotional dots. But then what really makes me love the song is the ending. It comes full circle uh, at the end. So she hears six months later after the class that the instructor has died um, and then in drops this lyric. Six months later, I heard that Carp had died and I dug right down to the bottom of my soul and cried because I felt nothing. Six months later, I heard that Carp had died. And I dug right down to the bottom of my soul. 
Ugh. It's dark, a little sad, funny in a cynical way, and just like an unexpected coda to the song. And it's little moments like that that make me love the show. Like just when you think it's gone, like totally sappy, like in pops this like sort of a- accurate, you know, very real life twist. My mother had a story, a real life story similar to that. Like apparently she was <laughs> sort of being mocked by her math teacher on a Friday. Oh my God. And when she left the classroom, she said, oh, I wish he was dead. <gasps> and on Monday morning, when she walked into school, her friends were like, Patricia, Patricia, you got your wish. Oh. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he he and his family had been oh killed in a car God. accident over the weekend. That's horrible. I know. Can you imagine? No. Like having that. awful. Like, yeah. With yeah. That, that kind of reminded me that there was this teacher, once again, in junior high school, when people are, are at their cruelest, uh, that everyone hated this teacher. And she like died in a car crash and then like on monday morning my a friend of mine she was like walking down the halls and she was singing bah, bah, bah. another one bites the dust like really loud oh my and i God. was like laughing but i was like stop it that is horrible that is absolutely horrible um anyway you shouldn't you should. I think in junior. I don't think in junior high. I was. I would have given myself permission to laugh at that, even though clearly now I would. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting that you've always been. Oh, like I was sick. always a dark, cynical person, like dark sense of humor type person. Yes. Like yes. from from the from the jump. Um, well, let me talk about a happier song. Uh, there's a little gem in the, in the show called sing where one of the dancers, she's throwing herself in front of the bus about how shitty of a singer she is. There's quick asides, uh, where she tries to sing three blind mice and jingle bells and just like failing spectacularly. It takes the simple humor of hearing someone sing badly, you know, like watching an American idol audition, but it's a little bit more sophisticated because she's in on, she's in on the joke. She's self-aware and a little bit amused by her own shortcomings. I love this little section, but what, uh, sorry, but what I lack in pitch, I sure make up in power and all my friends say I am perfect for the shower. Still, I'm terrific at a dance. Guys are coming in their pants. I'm a birdie on the wing. But if I begin to chirp, they say, who's the little twerp going pong instead of ping? But what I like in pitch, I sure make up in power. And all my friends say I am perfect for the shower. Still, I'm terrific at a dance. Guys are coming in their pants. I'm a birdie on the wing. She knows she can't sing for shit, but also that she's such a good dancer, she can make people come in their pants. Which <laughs> is just, like, brilliant to me. So, like, Dance 10 looks through, it's another funny bit, but it's also, like, sneaking in, sneaking in a little message. Here I'd say it's about knowing and acknowledging your strengths and weaknesses. And on that front, I would love to say that seeing this show at a fairly young age helped steer me away from, you know, the tough life of pursuing a life as a professional entertainer. But the real reason is that I knew I couldn't act. And, you know, with my five note vocal range, not so much on the singing, I could play the piano, I could dance, but that's really about it. It's about as far as my talents extended. 
Um, so on the flip side of the last song, uh, I mentioned the song Nothing. While it is important to believe in yourself, it's also equally important to not be delusional. Uh, so, and I think you with your, oh, I think we all know a couple people that should possibly be taken aside and told, I appreciate in concept what you're doing, but stop. Please yeah. just stop. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's probably well, it, possibly even listening to this that would like to have that same heart to heart with us. Like, oh my God, you guys are going on like two decades. <laughs> like, can you just give up already? <laughs> it's like, like, it's not going it's to happen. Never going to happen. <laughs> no, it's it's. This is a funny thing. Like Don was. Um, uh, when we were talking with Don and talking about like, if you're in a program and you're not getting oh, yeah. you know, the things that you need, yeah. you, you need to reevaluate. But I think that that's one of the problems is because there is also that sort of like blind, that blind, like, you know, bull in a China shop sort of faith that some people have totally. that does get them places. I suppose you know. Yeah, I, I you mean, have to have and a so it's of talent. I mean, there were some people, yeah, in my undergrad. It's like eventually they got the message and like you know, and like uh, dropped out of being perform performance majors. But it was like, whoa, how did you think this was going to happen? But I think a lot of it has to do with yes, exactly what you're saying. Like self, like you, having a relationship with yourself and and realizing that maybe you like. I mean, this is what I think we've done. Like we have we've figured out a way to to have this creative part of our lives um, without it necessarily being the focus sure. of our lives. Yeah. And I think yeah. that allows us to have a hopefully a little more. Um, perspective. I don't yeah. know. I I think it's I think it's really tough. It, it it really bums me out though. At the same degree, when some people are like, "I'm never doing that again," because I'm like, "But why would you do that to yourself? Like, if you love it, totally. Why would you Why would you leave it? Yeah. Fully? The flip you know, side like, of that is, I have definitely known some extremely talented people that it's like you that have just sort of hung you know hung up their hat, or yeah, or it's absolutely. like you knew from the absolutely. from the get go that it's like they're never gonna like quote unquote make it whatever that means just because they don't have that like tenacity or like yeah that ability that blind, to hear the, no yeah. and like yes just, you or know. yeah 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 oh it's true it's complicated true. um so moving on i want to touch on the character of paul for some obvious reasons at one, uh, is he the gay boy? He is the gay boy. Okay. Uh, at one pivotal point in the show, Zach calls Paul, who's been re reluctant to share his past, on stage for a private talk. Paul relives through a monologue his childhood and high school experience, his early career in a drag act, coming to terms with being gay, and his parents' ultimate reaction to finding out about it. So, first of all, just in terms of representation, it was com commendable that a high school actually kept this monologue at all, much less fully intact when I saw it wow. in the early 1990s. But it was also a little bit like seeing Anna Kendrick sing Ladies Who Lunch as a tween in the movie Camp. Another chance to disapprove Another brilliant So 
picture picture a 16 year old boy delivering hazy long ago memories of doing drag at a place called the jewel box review and then they brought me back downstairs and they said oh you have wonderful legs i said really terrific it's so strange thinking about this it was a whole lifetime ago i was just past 16 Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, even as a kid, like it was. So I was probably like fourteen. Yeah, I was like fourteen watching this. So even as a kid, it seemed jarring and not particularly age appropriate. Um. So wait, was this at Carmel? Yeah. High. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you weren't. I was there not yet. there. You yet. were in the junior yeah, high. Yeah. Yes, but I just loved musical theater. So I was like, right, oh, right, they're right, doing right. a chorus line. That's some show about dancers. Like, I'm going to go yeah. see that. And then it, I was like, whoa. Were you freaked it. out with with your mother next to you when the the gay stuff well, was happening or the wet dream talk? Funny, or, you should. Are you say getting to that? that. Okay. So the next sorry. piece. No, no, no. That was perfect segue. So the next piece was picture me as a 14 year old not having taken step one on a journey toward coming out, I mean, and having to sit through this part of the monologue. Once my cousin said to me, you'll never be an actor, and I knew she was telling me this because I was such a sissy. I mean, I was terribly effeminate. I always knew I was gay, but that didn't bother me. What bothered me was that I didn't know how to be a boy. One day I looked at myself in the mirror and said, you're 14 years old and you're a faggot. What are you going to do with your life? I mean, was I squirming in my seat? I was squirming in my seat. You're 14 years old and you're a faggot. Uh, um, yeah, it's a pretty raw and awkward monologue that ends. And they it. kept that word. All of it. Like word yeah, for word. Wow. So I said it was commendable if not. They can't say tits odd. and ass, but they can say Correct. Faggot. It That's was interesting. so bizarre. The choices that were made okay. there were very strange. Uh, so yeah, the monologue ends with him bursting into tears and being cuff- comforted by Zach. It doesn't necessarily paint, you know, as a young kid watching it, didn't necessarily paint the rosiest of pictures in terms of coming out, um, especially given that it ends in like a puddle of tears. I should mention that in other places in the show, the subject is handled with a somewhat lighter touch. Um, in the song Hello 12, Hello 13 that I previously mentioned, the character Greg shares this memory. And then there was the time I was making out of the back seat with Sally Ketchum. We were necking and I was feeling her boobs and feeling her boobs. And after about an hour or so, she said, oh, don't you want to feel anything else? And I suddenly thought to myself, no, I don't. It was probably the first time I realized I was homosexual. And I got so depressed because I thought being gay meant being a bum all the rest of my life. And like that part's true. I could definitely say that as a kid, <laughs> I thought being gay meant being a bum the rest of my life. Um, really? Kinda. So, you know, I would like to quickly say how grateful, obviously, I, obviously I am for the progress that's made during the course of my, I mean, our lifetime. Yeah. And what, while we have plenty to cry about these days, and not to minimize how much further, <laughs> further there is still to go, it has been over 20 years since I have shed any self-hating tears about, you know, right. What I'd right. like to put where. Right. So, right. Um, Agreed. Regarding the Frank sexuality in the show, Michael Bennett, who you may or may not know was bisexual. Uh, I do. I did. Yeah, yeah. I figured you probably knew a decent amount about Michael Bennett, but just for those of you who may not, in his younger days, he had, he had a relationship with Larry Fuller, a dancer, choreographer, and director whose Broadway choreographer credits include 
included include rather on the 20th century and merrily we roll along he also um Michael Bennett also had a long professional and personal relationship with the dancer Donna McKechnie, who danced his work in Promises, Promises, and Company, and won the 1976 Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical in the role he created for her for this show. And she sings uh, What I Did for Love, right? Or does she sing one? She is the um, uh, Music in the Mirror one. Cassie, <sighs> the one where she comes and she's... Cassie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and sings with the mirrors and all of that. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, well, that's the, like, prototypical Cassie moment for me. Right, Yeah. okay, okay. So she didn't sing. Okay, for some reason I thought she did what I did for life. I don't but. think so. I may be conflating it, or I may be uh, screwing it up with the movie, where it's definitely right. not her. I thought it was the Diana character that did it. I may have to look that up real quick. Uh, yeah, it's just yeah that song I'm always just, like, yawn. Um uh, anyway, so Michael and uh, Donna McKechnie were a thing. Uh, they married on December 4th, 1976, but after only a few months, they separated and eventually di- divorced in 1979. Um, sadly, Michael Bennett died in 1987 from AIDS-related lymphoma at the age of 44. Wow. Wow, right? And his, mo- yeah. his I mean, in like those credits and everything that he did, like, Wow. Uh, by age 44 his memorial service took place at the schubert theater which was the home at the time of a chorus line uh, so it was running in yeah. in 87 mm-hmm. oh wow yeah it was the longest running musical until cats took it over oh yeah. my god how embarrassing I know, like, for it <laughs> exactly like <laughs> that talk about disgrace you used the word disgrace uh, earlier that's a disgrace uh, yeah um Anyway, back to the show in terms of plot, it's pretty much dancer stories, dancer stories, dancer stories. There's this romantic subplot that I never really cared about between Zachy and Zach, Zachy, Zach right. and that dancer, Cassie, right. which is the dog right. of the kidney roll. And then the show wraps when it's time to make the final cuts. The right. show ends with the sort of well-earned finale one. Uh, and even though I don't necessarily love that song itself, which I mentioned, the visual is very satisfying. It's all of these unique individuals blending together into this kicking Broadway chorus, a condensing of many to one. And while the song feels well, just sort of serviceable serviceable to me, it definitely serves the intention. Yeah. yeah. And it's also like the shiny yeah. veneer as opposed to the gritty totally. reality. You and know? it's so like they're auditioning that. for a cheesy Broadway show. Yes. So like yeah, they obviously exactly, had to write exactly. a cheesy, yeah. like yeah. serviceable, nondescript, like Broadway song. Uh, yes. But the visual is like, you know, for sure, like very seals satisfying. The, deal. Uh, the creative team, I already mentioned, you know, Michael Bennett and, and the other writers, but um, I wanted to just briefly uh, touch on Marvin Hamlish, who wrote the music. Hamlish was an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Uh, but did you know he was also one of only two people, along with composer Richard Rogers, to have won those four prizes plus a Pulitzer Prize, which was for the show. So he was a P. No. He was a P. Got. No, I did not. Know that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I really only know him because he worked with Barbara <laughs> later. <laughs> the next thing life. I was going to say is, given your Barbara obsession, <laughs> you probably know Hamlish best for his song yeah. "The Way We Were," for which he won yep. a 1974 yep. Academy Award. 
Yeah. I'm glad that I paused to see if you were going to take that bait. Oh, I took it. took took the bait. Uh, But yeah, I do. I really do love the music in the show. It's more pop than traditional Broadway in terms of like rhythm and harmony. There's all these like sudden fun surprises in the score and the music always feels like it actually suits the characters and moments, which as you know, is one of my very big pet peeves as previously bitched about when we discussed Evita and Natasha Pierre. Um, Yeah. The original cast I mentioned, Donna McKechnie played the role of Cassie for which she won for best actress. Uh, In addition, Kelly Bishop won featured actress for her work in the role of Sheila Bryant, the salty streetwise over it all dancer of the bunch. You may know Miss Bishop as the mother of Jennifer Gray's baby in the film Dirty Dancing. But yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Right. That's Sheila Bryant. But I know her best as matriarch Emily Gilmore on the WB series Gilmore Girls because I'm a basic bitch and used to watch the hell out of that show. I think I watched okay. every single episode of that show. <laughs> okay. Yep. Never seen it. Uh, seriously? Like not a single Never. episode. Wow. Not a single. Wow. I don't know if that would, that is a commentary on you or me. I mean, I'm sort of judging myself that I used to watch it. Um, Did she, they have some sort of magic or something? No. Magic? No. Oh. Okay. No, they just let there was some other some show that must have been like there must have charmed or something. I feel oh, like I think it must like, have been charmed. There's like a lot of cheesy WB shows. No, this was just these this fast talking like you know. Okay, okay, like okay. Three generations of women in a town in this picturesque town in New England. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the same creator uh, that. Uh, that did, uh, oh my God, oh my God, the one based on Joan Rivers, the one that's right now winning accolades on Amazon <clears throat> about the comedian. Oh, Mrs. Maisel. Thank you. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes. Same creator of the show. Of Gilmore Girls? Yes. Yeah. Oh, That was like her original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. Uh, what an aside. I love, I um, love Mrs. Maisel. Oh my God, it's so good. So you might like Gilmore Girls. Check it out. You have plenty of time these days. I, We're I, in a pandemic. Very uh, true. <laughs> so. And we just finished watching Lovecraft Cunty. Lovecraft Cunty. Love- I was like, that sounds, uh, wait, that sounds right on my alley. Lovecraft Cunty. <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't, like, what is that Lovecraft show about? Lovecraft Country and The Vow. Oh. Which... Huh. Lovecraft Country, highly recommend. Yeah. The Vow, not so much. A little slow, but fascinating. You know, it's a real thing. It's a documentary. Oh, you should check it out. Okay, I don't about know. the crazy, crazy cult. It's a cult. Oh, I do love a crazy cult. You will, you love, you'll cult. love a cult. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to. Say, who I'm else? Trying to figure out how to segue from cult back to Sheila, but it's nothing's <laughs> coming to me. Uh, so Sheila's biggest musical moment in the show is part of the at, at the ballet trio, where she oh, I remember yeah, that. where yeah. she delivers such lyrics as "Daddy always thought that he married beneath him," which is a pretty fucking brutal line if you think about it. Daddy always thought that he married beneath him. That's what he said. That's what he said. When he proposed, he informed my mother he was probably her very last chance, and though she was. You don't even have to think about it too hard. That's just brutal. Uh, she's uh, also She also has one of my favorite spoken lines in the show. After one of the other dancers asks the director if they can sit down, she pipes in with, And smoke? Can the adults please smoke? Uh, 
I don't smoke, but fine. This is like a great deadpan line to just drop, you know, whenever requesting yeah. a break, whenever you just need, need, need five. I found this great interview with Kelly Bishop in the wall street journal from a few years back. Um, and she had this to say about joining the original production of A Chorus Line. Having no idea whether it would be a hit and honestly not caring, I was using that show as a stepping stone to my acting career. I didn't want to be seen as a musical theater performer. It's not that I don't love musicals, but I'm really not a singer. I was a good dancer, but I knew the age was approaching and that it was time to get out. And I had a bug about the way dancers were treated. That was another reason I wanted to move on. In those days, they still had the dancing chorus and the singing chorus. And it was always that the singers were called men and women and the dancers were called boys and girls. I found that so insulting. Oh In one industrial show I did, there was a producer who referred to the dancers as jumpers. Jumpers, like we were little rabbits. So, oh my god. Right? Isn't that fascinating into like like days of the Broadway days of old? Gross. Boys and girls. Boys and girls Ugh. and jumpers. Uh Ugh. you know, she kind of mentions herself, you know, that she was uh, not much of a singer. Which is like partially true. Uh, I kind of love that too. When you listen to the original recording, I sort of love that they're like rough around the edges a little bit in terms of right. the singing. Like it's definitely like the focus was on like the acting and the dancing, um, which again, just I feel like lent to the authenticity. Uh, this show was a huge hit. Uh, following several workshops in an off-Broadway production, a chorus line opened at the Schubert Theater on Broadway July 25th, 1975. An unprecedented box office and critical hit, the musical received 12 Tony Award nominations and won nine, in addition to the 1976 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The original Broadway production ran for 6,137 performances, becoming the longest-running production in Broadway history, as I mentioned, until surpassed by oh my Cats. God. In 1997, and, and you're probably going to say this, but like I, this was obviously right after Hair. Uh, it um, was question so, mark, but I wasn't going to say that. So basic, but well, sorry, is that it? Hair first, yeah. and then this yeah. really made the public oh, for what sure. it is today. For sure, I mean Joseph Papp was a. I mean, the, the public theater is one of the only theaters in the nation that receives money from the city mm-hmm. it receives money from the city of new york and that was a fight that he fought for a very long time but it was because of these huge successes that the public was able to expand and buy that enormous building and build all those theaters and make all of this outreach happen and yeah and and so it was a it's a, that's why it's such a big part of that book that i was telling you about i think you'd find that little section interesting which is no small i would very much find that interesting which is and it's a no small feat to try to get like government funding for the arts in this country i mean yeah like that's actually part of your byline it's not yeah. like a grant it's it's just like this money goes like to the public always theater and forever every exactly. year yeah i mean yeah. look at what's happening now we wouldn't be in the situation that we're at with so many artists out of work i mean obviously it would still be dire but it would be you know not the entire industry collapsing like yeah, it is now exactly uh, exactly you know but you know there we have it um so this was a massive colossal hit um other incarnations after the broadway production um there was a truly truly terrible 1985 film version directed by richard attenborough and starring michael douglas 
the film was released theatrical on december 13th 1985 by columbia pictures it received mixed reviews from critics and was a box office bomb grossing only 14 million from a 25 million dollar budget it's telling that michael bennett was initially a creative consultant for the film but left due to creative differences he rightfully sought creative control over his projects and no surprises here hollywood producers were unwilling to give him the influence he demanded um the other notable revival on Broadway was in 2006, which, what the hell, I didn't go see. And I, have, I didn't either. I have no I didn't idea either. why. I remember and it. And it ran for like a good bit. It uh, opened on October 5th, 2006, closed on August 17th, 2008, after 759 performances. Charlotte Damboise was probably the biggest name. You know, she's done like a ton of theater. She was in the Cassie role. Um We've talked a little bit on prior episodes about stunt casting, and there was a little little stunt casting done here on April 15th, 2008. Someone joined the cast as the replacement for Zach. Do you have any ideas? Any recollection of who that might be? Oh, gosh. No. Okay. Mario. Kevin Spacey. No. Okay. Oh, my God. That would have been... <laughs> actually, he probably wouldn't have been that bad as a dick, dickhead uh, director. Uh, no. Uh, Mario Lopez. What? Yeah. So can I just give myself a little round of applause Wait, that I have now managed what? to work two Saved by the Bell references in a discussion about a chorus line. The first one, of course, Mario being, Lopez yes. was the director? <laughs> Correct. In what? Yeah, that doesn't even make it any doesn't sense. even make any sense. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm gonna. Can we look that up? Let's look that up. Yeah, you think you'd be one of the dancers? I mean, that literally makes no sense. Um, yeah, wow. that's very strange. Well, so yeah, but I am I am happy about the Saved by the Bell stuff. That's good. Uh, yeah, because that's, that's impressive. In case the rest of you didn't connect those dots, obviously Elizabeth Berkeley from Showgirls. She does have some stage credits herself. Um, I actually saw her in her. 2004 Broadway debut in a comedy called A Sly Fox opposite Richard Dreyfus. It was a free ticket and it was not very good. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Although then she did like Hurley Burley after that and she actually got some yeah. decent reviews. Yep. Um, she wasn't, Ray, yeah, she wasn't bad or anything. Um, I just don't remember the play being all that good. Uh, what else? Oh, I just before I, I want to get your impressions on a chorus line, but I, I yeah, maybe I just want to get your impressions on a chorus line now. Well, I I kind of have said I think most of what I I I know it primarily from reading about it mm-hmm. and from that really terrible movie, Ooh. and then I've probably watched you know if like a handful of like clips of people doing songs from it okay um so i i'm i feel like it's when you were talking about it i was like oh i remembered more than i thought i would when you when i when you first said that's what you were talking about um and very clearly like the nothing song and the looks 10 dance three and the tits and ass and um and beautiful at the ballet i mean all those 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 are really it's surprising how much I remember them having mm-hmm. not actually seen a production. Yeah. Um, one funny thing is that in my first year, I think of, uh, of undergrad, I had some friends and one of them was a high school teacher and we would go to the high school auditorium and set up a microphone and sing things such as 
what I did for love. <laughs> Kiss and today friends goodbye. are friends forever. If the Lord's the Lord of them. Oh dear. Um, oh yeah. We had a whole like gamut of, of material that we would cover, but what I did for love was, uh, was a, was a big one. So it's, it's so bizarre to think about that. It's a good um, belty. It's a good belty song. It's a, it's a good belty song and you can be a good karaoke, yeah. uh, with like 10 other people belting it exactly three, exactly. three martinis in I also, though, am shocked that I didn't yeah, see the I production like, in 2006. Literally, it's very weird. No excuse. I have no yeah. idea why I did not see that. Um, very, very last, just to put a little footnote on a chorus line, I wanted to shout out to our good friend Desiree, who's a who's a dancer and not not surprisingly, therefore, loves this show. There's a section in the movie where Zach singles out some girl in the audition while they're like showcasing their ballet, the dancers. So picture Michael Douglas sitting in the orchestra at the table with the mic. And there's like pretty ballet music happening and, you know, dancers going through their steps. And he suddenly interjects, girl in the yellow trunks, don't dance. The girl in the yellow trunks. Yes, the ballet. Don't dance. Don't dance! Don't dance! The music stops and the girl in the yellow trunks runs off crying and it's so ridiculous and so over the top and badly acted. <laughs> so of course we found it hilarious and always be like apropos of nothing, just be like, I said, don't dance girl in the yellow trunks. Uh, but it's also funny because it's all, you know, not remotely out of left field in terms of like intense director choreographer types. Like, I don't know about right, you, but right. my high yes. school show choir director definitely screamed at a lot of girls and made them cry, you know, basically about whether their fingers were like crisp enough in their jazz hands. So, <laughs> oh my god girl in the yellow trunks um, yeah well that that i'm surprised i did not have any idea what? i actually like that you were going to talk about this yeah i mean i didn't either so like I, i've said before i keep thinking i'm gonna there's like this i have this like grab bag of like 10 different shows that i absolutely love but then, like, I've sat down and been like, what do I want to say about it? And it's like, right, right. I love this show. Like, but I was yes, like, you know, yes. I just, yes. then I was like, oh, but then and then yes. I remember that there's this whole other roster of shows that I that I that I love and uh, were formative in some fashion. Uh, so, yeah, this, this was fun for me. This one was fun That's for a me. Formative is a good segue. I mean, formative as a 14-year-old listening to Paul's monologue. I would yeah. say that was formative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in a high school production. <laughs>
that I've been so earnest or as, as, been... as earnest as I ever get. Um, well, this is the thing. My musical that yeah. I hate is I don't hate it. First of all, oh. I could never completely hate it. Okay. I just was massively disappointed. Funny. I think is when we get to the a... sh- when we get to my show, it's the same sitch, same sitch. Um, and literally when I I'm transitioning yeah. by the way, just no, to no, let you know. Yeah. Um, when uh, like. It, it is when you said the word formative, because this is also the same time that I was introduced to, um, I think I was probably, yeah, sometime between the age, the ages of 13 and 15, I, I read three books that I remember sort of impacting me in a significant way. Um, the World According to Garp. Yeah. Okay. Which I, which I, which I still stand by today. The Prince of Tides, which I don't <laughs> as strongly stand yeah, by but today. I read that and loved it. <laughs> Oh, it, I mean, he's a fucking great writer, even though it's it's ridiculous in many ways. But and the Pulitzer Prize winning novel that ultimately inspired this musical adaptation, it had a profound emotional effect on me. And there were several other um, I think all of them were girls. All of them were girlfriends who were also reading these same sorts of books at the same time. So we were like sharing this. We had this shared experience, this shared emotional experience. And it also had a, a effect on me in a historical sense because it, it was a window into a period of American history that I probably didn't know really existed and certainly didn't really understand. Um, I was obsessed with it for many reasons. This is so funny that we're talking. It's like, it's, it's so it's so mirrored in a way. It was a stunning book to read in so many ways. It was violent. It was dark, but ultimately inspirational and life-affirming. A loving homosexual relationship rose from this pit of poverty and despair and happened to be something that I was <laughs> truly grappling with at that moment in my life. Shortly thereafter, there was a film adaptation, and I remember seeing this movie and <laughs> experiencing a, not a dissimilar disappointment. Um, it was probably that first time. We've talked about this so many times on this podcast where you have this, like, mm-hmm. you just can't wait to see this yep. thing, and then you see it, and you're like, ah. Oh. And it's such a rare occasion that it doesn't fall short, but every once in a while, it doesn't. Um the movie changed way too many things, in, including its depiction of the main loving relationship. And there were some very sentimental choices that were made that took me years to accept. Although I do now actually consider the film to be one of my favorites, despite a few of the choices I still find maddening. Um, but when the film like was on, it was on. And part of when it was on was due to the music mm-hmm. because there was music in the film, which was, which is extraordinarily iconic. And I remember listening to the, found, the film soundtrack often, especially several songs that were written for it that remain so timeless. So when it was announced that a musical adaptation was coming to Broadway, I was both thrilled and terrified having been through this sort of expectation once before at a certain level, I was prepared for a similar experience I had when watching the film. And once again, I was disappointed, but I think even more so, I hate to say. And of course, it's impossible because that was so long ago and this was so recent. Um, the musical takes place in the early to mid 20th century American South and is, of course, the color purple. I didn't okay. see the original production. Neither did I. Um, 
I heard pretty quickly from people and reviews that it was deeply flawed and I wasn't ready to be disappointed in that way again because this book probably is... I would say remains in the top five of like, I would say most influential and favorite books of all time. And and one of only a handful of books that I have read more than once. Um, but when the 2016 revival came, there was a different buzz, which was focused primarily on the, the, you know, the change in direction, a much simpler approach. And of course the new British star in the making who we had not yet met, which was Cynthia Erivo. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is the color purple. It's it, it's weird because it's like huh. it pains me to talk about sure. how much this show disappointed me because I love this book so much and this story. And I think that's why I could never say I hate it. Yeah, I refused to go see the original production just because I was like knew that it was going to be like really sentimental and schlocky. And it like looked like it was like cost a million bucks and it was like backed by oprah and there were so many things about it that made me roll my eyes i was just like that and that is the thing that i yeah exactly exactly so let me let me give you some information which i learned a lot actually from this little bit of research so the music and lyrics were written by brenda russell Ali Willis and Stephen Bray with a book by Marcia Norman adapted from the original novel by Alice Walker, as well as the screenplay of the film Men- who was written by oh, Menno right. Mijas. I can't okay, actually there pronounce was all that those name, writers too. Yeah, exactly. It like it there was were like focus grouped. I was like, what is exactly, with all these writers? Exactly. Yeah, this is yeah. the part that bombs me the fuck out. So Brenda Russell and uh, the other part of it is none of these writers had ever mm-hmm. written for musical theater mm-hmm. before. They were all yeah. pop music. Music writer. Yep, so Brenda yep, Russell yep. is most widely known for her adult contemporary hit Piano in the Dark, which was from 1988. No idea. Remember last week when we were talking about oh, um, yeah, just Funny did. Jobs and I was DJing. I played that song frequently on my <laughs> DJ shift because it was, pro- you know, I didn't get to choose what I played. It was programmed. Okay. So um, except maybe like occasionally. So I remember playing Piano in the Dark. Uh, she also, this was fascinating. I did not know this. She also wrote and recorded the Alita Adams hit, Get Here. You remember that yeah, song? Yeah, I remember that. Get she Here. She wrote that if fucking you can. song. You can jump on a speed coat, cross the border in a blaze of I don't care how you get here. Get here if you can. There are hills and Yeah, so cheesy. she wrote that song. So cheesy. It's a, but it's a. Oh, great it's a good one. Song. In terms of, uh, well, we're gonna get this into get into some more adult contemporary conversations yeah. soon. But yeah, that's a yeah. good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she has been nominated for five Grammys, including oh. one for uh, the uh, the score or the score of of the color purple. Uh, Allie Willis, who was actually named Alt, that was her nickname, Alta Sherelle Willis, co-wrote mm. Earth, Wind and Fire hits September and Boogie Wonderland, oh, as well as co-wrote What Have I Done to Deserve This with the Pet Shop Boys that featured Dusty Springfield. What have I, what have I, what have I done to deserve this? What? Right? 
right? Like how fucking random that it is. is. Like random. She, she is. This is this is this is the part that's crazy. <laughs> she is probably most known for penning the Friends theme song "I'll Be There for You," which she jokingly referred to as the whitest song I ever wrote. <laughs> Sadly, she died of cardiac arrest (laughs) December 24th, 2019 in Los Angeles, just very, very recently. (laughs) I think she was in her 70s, but still, she was she was. So what, you're saying she deserved to die? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying it wasn't like she was 40. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. And then Stephen Bray, this is the third music and lyric collaborator who is, this is, this, this is crazy. All sitting around who's a best, boardroom. Like. Who's best known for his collaborations with Madonna, including Ooh. Into the Groove, True Blue, oh. Causing a Commotion, Keep It Together, and Express Yourself. Like early writer collaborator. Of all of those songs. Oh. The Color Purple was workshopped in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater in the summer of 2004. It premiered on September 9th, 2004. LaShawn's starred La- as Seely. LaChance. Notice I got man. that right. Yes. Um, Nailed it. <laughs> it opened on Broadway on December 1st, 2005. It was directed by Gary Griffin and produced by Scott Sanders, Quincy Jones, and Oprah Winfrey. Scott Sanders is the producer who secured the rights from Alice Walker. Okay. I, I didn't mentioned that but i remember the saying or uh, reading that it ran for 30 previews and 910 performances recouping within its first year and grossing over 100 million by the time it closed it was nominated for 11 tonys winning only one for lachance in the leading hmm. role of miss Celia. yeah she beat now, this she is, beat patty i was so pissed we already mentioned this before so this is interesting this is actually part of my trivia for later but ironically or it's not ironically. It's not ironically. That's not okay, the right word. Okay, Alanis. Like Alanis. Yeah. I know. That's the Alanis version. It's it's uh, uh, unfortunate. Serendipitously, that's I pronounced that wrong, but it's all right. the, the film, The Color Purple, yeah. was also nominated for exactly 11 Oscars. And what did, how many did it win? It won Zip? zero. Zippo. Really? It is tied. Huh. It is tied for the most for the most massive snub in history with the Turning Point, which was a which was a ballet film starring Shirley MacLaine and Mikhail Baryshnikov, which was made in 1977, and that was also nominated for an 11 mm. Academy Awards and did not win one. There was also another massive snob for the film, which was Steven Spielberg. He was not nominated for Best Director. Wow. I mean, it would. Uh, that's the only time I've seen Oprah like act. Really? No, I mean like well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like she was actually pretty decent in that, right? Oh, she was amazing she was good in, that. in that. Pretty yeah. decent. Yeah, she was amazing. Yeah, she was good in that. Also, like, oh. um, I don't think it would fly in the year twenty twenty to have a white man direct uh, direct a color purple. I mean, they. S- well, someone still would. I mean, someone so look, still it, would that make was, that decision. But <laughs> that was obviously a complaint, and I'm going to talk a little oh, bit more okay. about some of the things uh, about the movie later. Um, but it's funny that you should say that about Oprah too, because there's a quote that I didn't end up copying that the woman who played Squeak um, in the film, uh, like Radon Chong, I think was her name. Yeah, Radon Chong, and she has this this quote about Oprah that is like vicious. Really. Oh, <laughs> I'll have to send yeah, it to you because it's fucking hysterical. Okay. So the first national tour began in Chicago in 2007 and lasted, ran for th- almost three years. A non-ec second national tour ran for the year between 2010 and 2011 and featured none other than 
Dana no, Dantzler just put that together. as Whoops. fucking Seeley. You are trashing Dana's, sh- Dana's show. I'm not, tr- I'm not trashing yes. Dana. I mean, obviously. Um, she had just come off of this tour, right? Yeah. It had just ended yeah, right before she auditioned yeah. for our little stupid musical, yeah. Hello, My Name is Billy, our for the 2011 NYC Fringe show. Festival. Yeah. Um, there was a London production that only ran from July to September of 2013, so it was not a hit really? in London. I mean, Brit- um, the British have terrible taste in musicals, though, as we've it's talked, true. They really talked do. about we, before. We, we ha- I'm kind of surprised. But we haven't, yeah, yeah, but we haven't really, like delved into that mm. but so then the broadway revival which was uh ran from t- 2015 to 2017 featuring cynthia Revo and jennifer hudson that actually began in london yep. so they yep. were the first people who re- who remounted that found cynthia Revo, and then brought it here the revival was nominated for four tonys and won two for cynthia Revo and for best revival there have also been productions in south africa the netherlands a few other cities in the uk canada and brazil um, the known songs, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, the only ones that I, when I was re-listening to the, the soundtrack yesterday and today, um, the songs I kind of did remember was Push the Button, which is sort of the sexy Suge song. I don't Excuse really me? remember any of the songs from the, the show. The Color Purple. And, of course, the only song that I think almost everyone remembers, which is I'm Here, well, which yeah. is the show-stopping yeah. finale that Cynthia Erivo, where we've, ta- we've talked about this many times, everyone in the audience is standing yep. and weeping and clapping for like five minutes. For sure. Thankful As I have said many times about other shows, is that one moment worth this entire show? I would have to say with this show, I think it is. I think this song is worth this show because I don't think the show is terrible. I just think it's really not. It doesn't live up to the story's the the story, the story, not the story's potential, but the story. I mean, the story is fucking insanely uh, brilliant and it just doesn't capture it. So. What my, I think my biggest problem, and this is, you know, this is probably going to be a, a point of contention for anyone who really loves musical theater. But I would say, how could you fucking mount this production without those two incredibly iconic songs that were made, that were mm. attached to the film, Miss Seeley's Blues, no. and maybe God is trying to tell you something. Ugh. For me, it's like putting Frozen on the stage and you don't have Let It Go. Yeah. Like, why would you not do it that? It would be and a much I, better show with those two songs. I'm keeping my eyes on you. 
it would have changed store. everything. It yeah. would have changed everything. It would have let you like had had you something to you know latch onto. And mm. and I mean, I couldn't figure out. I haven't been able to figure out why, but I would either they just wanted to completely reimagine it or it's possible the rights were owned by Warner Brothers and not by Quincy yeah, Jones. I was going to say, because he interestingly wrote those songs, enough, right? He wrote those songs, yeah. but, but interestingly enough, Quincy Jones was a producer of this show sure, with that's Oprah. That's what you so said I, at the beginning. I'm like, yeah. he couldn't have made that happen. But yeah, maybe yeah, there was so, some like larger rights issue or something. Well, the other thing that I learned when I was looking over some film stuff is that um, – when this show was when the sorry when the film was nominated for best score it was very controversial because even though Quincy Jones was sort of the the writer of record there were 11 people that were attached oh, wow. to that award because they were like hey i wrote this or i wrote this or i wrote this and so i think it probably was fairly complex yeah. i imagine from that from that um, I feel like this musical had so many things going on, which which completely abandoned the narrative structure of the novel and even the film to a certain degree. It's in, sorry, it is in the voices of Celie and Nettie. That and and primarily it is from Celie's perspective, and I just don't feel like that is in any way they didn't try to do that in any way with the the um, the stage production. I mean, I it obviously it's really hard to adapt a, sh- a book that's written in letter form yeah, that was made right. into this like now iconic Oscar losing film <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> for the stage. And I understand all that, but the, the biggest misfire for me and it just kind of encapsulates why this fails is the ridiculous song that Harpo and Sophia have in the midst of act two, which I'm sure you don't remember. It's called any little thing. It's ludicrous. First of all, Sophia has left Harpo. Mm-hmm. Sophia was Sophia had left Harpo when Harpo uh, beat her, yeah. and then she was in fucking prison, and she comes back, and now they're singing this song with lyric. This these are the lyrics. I fed the chickens and I chopped the wood and then I put up the peaches like you said I should. I mended the fences and painted them too. Now is there anything I can do for you? I fed the chickens and I chopped the wood and then I put up the peaches like you said I should. I mended the fences and painted them too. Now is there anything I can do for you? What? Like they're having this little jig. It, they they never their their relationship never recovered in that way that they could that was the beginning of their relationship right, right, that's right. when they were played that's before he fucking beat her right. you know like you don't that didn't make any sense and it, I just remember emotionally being so jarred by that that I was just like this smacks of we need a fun song in act two so it's not just a slog which is exactly the problem that I have as you mentioned it feels like so many people worked on this it lacks a cohesive vision Mm -hmm. and you know despite the fact the film was sentimental and completely reduced Celie and Shug's relationship you can't say that it doesn't have vision it's Spielbergian Mm -hmm. it's sentimental it's over the top but it's still like it is clear and this musical just doesn't have that sort of clarity and it never does Um, but as I said I, I, I do believe that that song is probably one of the greatest musical theater songs of all time so if if the show a very mediocre show needed to be written to expose it to expose us to that then i guess uh it was it's i guess, uh, it, I guess it was okay yeah it was it's uh defying gravity yeah yeah 
Um, I do want to say also that a film version of the musical is in the works. It does have an IMDb page. Hmm. Um, there's a director and a writer attached, but no cast members have actually at least. Yeah. Nobody's under contract. It doesn't seem like because there's no names on the page. Well, I feel like they can't do it, cannot do it without Cynthia. No, I'm sure that she's going to do like it. That yeah, just, I, like that. I feel like it would be a complete waste of. Yeah. time and yeah. money and energy if she were not involved i mean there's there's a part of me that feels like maybe there's hope that this could be another iteration because they do have a, a different screenwriter attached it's not martha uh not Mar- marcia sorry not marcia 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 norman marcia norman is is uh obviously the the screenplay will then be adapted from the musical stage adaptation, but Marsha Norman is not listed, is not going to be the screenwriter. But at the end of the day, it would still have those fucking focus grouped, uh, generic songs. I mean, (laughs) there's all the, the, you know, one thing that they'll have to do is write at least something new so that they could be considered for the, you know, Oscar race for best song. So they could have, so there's, there's a, there's a chance you must love me. Yeah, exactly. 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 (laughs) Uh, so wait, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the movie cause there's some funny, there's some pretty funny things in here that, um, that I thought were, were fascinating, particularly with casting, uh, Nell Carter and Jennifer holiday both turned down the role of Sophia really? that Oprah that Oprah took. Yeah. Huh. Shaka wait, wait, Khan. Who was the second one? Nell Carter and who? Jennifer holiday. Oh, wow. She probably regretted that i bet both of them regretted <laughs> I mean, both that. of them actually yeah huh um and then shaka khan and tina turner were both offered the role of suge avery and they both turned it down tina, which also fascinating to think of tina if, tina, well, if either of those women because they could have really been singing those songs yeah, you know because yeah, yeah, the woman yeah. who played suge avery did not sing which was a which was a big controversy around God, her oscar nomination mm-hmm um, well, I'm trying to wrap my head around Tina Shug, and I'm having a little bit of a hard time. But oh, for some reason, I was just like, that would be brilliant. Um, this is this is this is. There's a few things. Um, uh, let me see. The New York Times. This is this is kind of funny because it's it's sort of how I also feel about the musical. The New York Times, when the film came out, said, "Although the combination of his sensibilities and Miss Walker's amounts to a colossal mismatch, <laughs> Mr. Spielberg's Color Purple manages to have momentum, warmth, and staying power all the same." Which I think, in retrospect, I I do agree with this. Um, Steven Spielberg admits that his greatest mistake in directing the film was his lack of courage portraying the lesbian relationship mm. between Celie and Suge. At the time of filming, Spielberg feared that overtly, oh, sorry, overt sexuality between the two characters would alienate audiences, a decision he now regrets. And, mm. but it was true. I mean, it was 1985, you know, uh, it, it was a big, big movie and it would not have been that kind of movie. The people, people would not have seen it had it been. Uh, well, that's true. Had if the relationship had been more explicit, and then finally, I think I already talked a little bit about Quincy Jones. Uh, finally, Alice Walker, uh, who is obviously the author of the novel, attended the rushes at the end of filming each day, 
Yet she was horrified with the final cut of the film, especially (laughs) what she referred to as the Oklahoma-type opening scene. However, at the premiere, when she watched the movie with an enthusiastic audience, she changed her mind. She now says she likes the film very much, but thinks of it as being very different from her book. She just, in her mind, she's like, this is is something else. This is another. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, I think it's the reason that you... That, you, that we use the word adaptation mm-hmm. um, because it is not, it's just, it doesn't honor the source. I mean, I think in some ways the movie honors the source material better than the musical does, but it, it's, be- it's like because a, it, ha- it's in, it has, it has the a, magic. It's, you know, it's in a parallel. Sorry. I was just going to say it's in its own parallel universe though. So yeah. Hmm. What, so what was your experience of, this musical the musical oh i mean obviously i knew that this was something to see because it was a paired you know from reasons that you already stated that it was like pared down it was not the big you know blockbuster broadway musical that was its first incarnation and then of course i had heard all of the great uh notices regarding cynthia so i i was sort of like you know did not i had like decent level expectations because I'd heard good things about those aspects. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, it was just everything that you already said for me, the show as a whole was definitely just like very generic, but her performance was so great. And like I watched, wait, so I saw her with uh, Jennifer Hudson and it was, and I had, I I had very good seats too. And it was just fascinating because it was like, you know, just watching like her and Jennifer, it's like, I was like watching Jennifer. I was like watching someone realize that they were just like being usurped, like in terms of like, you know, it's like when, uh, when I was talking about, uh, uh, Carrie Underwood in the scene with Audra McDonald, like that, that was what their scenes were like for me. <laughs> right. Uh, but yes. like having said that, Jennifer, Hall- uh, Jennifer Holiday, Jennifer Hudson is like a phenomenal singer and I absolutely love her, but it was definitely like a head scratcher for me in terms of casting. Like, I just don't think that she was well cast in that role. Um, Jennifer Hudson? Jennifer Hudson, yeah. 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 Um, whereas when I heard that Heather Hadley was doing it, I was like, oh, shit. I totally could see her in that. And, like, it was, like, somewhat tempted to go see it again. But I, 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 I did not. But, yeah, I don't, like, I, like, you were listing, listing off songs from the show. I'm like, I don't remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was performances that I remembered, like not yeah. the show. I also enjoyed Danielle Brooks quite a bit. Like oh, from she was Orange is the New Black. She was, she, I thought she was great also. Yeah. Like Cynthia yep. and her, I thought were like the standout performances. They were matched. Me. Yeah. But, yeah. 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 But um, yeah, that was it. Like, I don't, I definitely was like, I don't ever need to see that musical again because why would I need to? after seeing the Cynthia in it. And, you know, I already had a bee in my bonnet about that show because, you know, I'll now say this for a third time that, uh, La Chanzy beat out, uh, beat out <laughs> pa- Patty Lapone who played tuba in, uh, John Doyle's, uh, Sweeney Todd. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, you know, John Doyle directed the revival of this. Oh my God. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Huh? Yep. It was wow. his third Tony nomination. I. It's funny. Before we started doing this podcast, like I would not have been able to tell if you said something about John Doyle, yeah. I would have been like, I don't know who that is. Hmm. Um, and now I, he's directed a fuck ton of shit. Like fuck he ton is, of shit. 
he is all over uh, London and Broadway, mm. West End and Broadway. Like um, he's Scottish uh, and he is not a youngster. He was born in 52. So I don't know how old that makes him because I can't do math. But um, was this 68? He's 68. Was this, uh, oh, you didn't see it. I was going to say, was this better or worse than the adaptation of Showgirls? <laughs> in terms Sadly. Of, in terms of adapting source material. Oh. I would say Showgirls the Music was very faithful to the original source material. In fact, one of the women, one of the actresses from the original film, like she had like a cameo in the musical. So, oh, that's fun. It was super fun. I don't remember her name, but she... I think it would be fun uh, in the future as we contemplate what we're going to do next season. Mm-hmm. Uh, this adaptation thing is actually an interesting one because, like, I uh, I recently watched Waitress, which I had never seen. Oh, the, the movie you'd never before. seen? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And um, and then like I haven't seen Kinky Boots. Um, I haven't really? seen the band's okay. visit. I haven't seen. You know, there's several movies that yeah. I would that I'm fascinated to see if they would like what what I would think about that leap. Um, and and also again who's attached to it. I think it's that vision thing for me with this. And it just Oprah did uh, Oprah didn't have the vision. She had a vision of putting it on stage, yes, but she didn't have uh, she a like, vision. I want to do a underlying Broadway musical. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. If we don't, exactly. if we, if this is, if this ends up being the last episode listeners, it's because Oprah had us killed between <laughs> episodes 19 and in what was intended to be episode 20 because i saw as after trashing her acting i sat here and got a little nervous so i was like oh i feel like she doesn't even need to have a beehive like she i feel like she will just show up and kill me I'm gonna um, I'm gonna tag her. I'm gonna tag her <laughs> to this episode. <laughs> so she so she gets like it's on it's on like a the the thirteen page uh, ream of of notices she gets daily of like exactly. where she's been mentioned. Yeah, she's yeah, like exactly. these stupid musical theater queens. Yeah, exactly. That's my really bad Oprah impression. It, was, it wasn't terrible. Uh, but you get, you know All what right. though? She makes, you know, I'm going to try to end with love and light and positivity. She makes a really fucking good uh, microwave pizza these days, stove pizza. <laughs> <laughs> she has the, and I'm not even joking. She has that stupid commercial about eating pizza. And, uh, and like Chris bought one. And like, I didn't even know I was eating an Oprah pizza until I had already eaten the Oprah pizza. And he told me, and I was like, that was pretty good and it was like made of like part cauliflower and so it's like you know so that's it no carbs yeah no carbs less carbs so there you go Um, maybe she won't kill me now she also was in the movie beloved which i saw saw and i i thought she was great i actually really liked Mm -hmm. that film even though it was it's super fucked up but i read the book it was amazing such a fucked fucked up book. book Yeah. As well as remember when she took on the meat industry in Texas? No. I will always give her credit for that. Yeah. 
she said she was like talking about reducing meat in your diet, that it's better for your body and all this shit. And the meat industry sued the fuck out of her. And she had to go live in Texas for like three weeks or something while she went to court wow. and defended her position that it was actually not good for you to eat red meat. Oh. And she didn't back down. Good for her. And if it had been anybody else, yeah. they probably they would have, would have had to. Steamrolled. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I will also give her... <laughs> Props for that. frantically <laughs> digging ourselves out of our hole. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. On that note, on that note, listeners. we we shall say farewell. Farewell, adieu. Till next time. Till next time. Bye. There is-